And just like Pastor Wayne uh, talked about just a little earlier as he lit the Christ candle on our Advent wreath, we've been thinking this Advent season about how Christmas must be linked with joy if we really want to understand the meaning of the birth of Jesus. It produced joy in Mary. It produced exceedingly great joy in the wise men. And as the early church started to write about this Jesus, it produced joy inexpressible and full of glory. And we looked last week at how Jesus, for the joy set before him, could endure the cross, despising its shame. Jesus could have joy, even under tremendous suffering, even as he bore the wrath of the Father for sins that he didn't commit, even as he took upon himself the sins of every person who would ever repent and believe on him. Jesus could have joy because his mission was accomplished. And as the end of Hebrews 12, 2 says, he is again seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He saw joy up ahead in the distance, the joy of being exalted by the Father. And that joy strengthened him to be able to go through what God had sent him to do. And so with the arrival of Christ, with the arrival of our Savior, comes the arrival of joy. And that's been our theme for the past uh, four weeks. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her King. And on this Christmas Day, as the church has gathered here this morning, I want us to think about how we can have joy because of what lies ahead for us. We certainly can look back on Christ's arrival and have a a, a deep-seated, deeply embedded joy because he came. And we have rightly made our Christmas celebrations to be not only about his arrival at the manger, but also his death on the cross. We have focused not only on his birth, but on his life and his death. But there is yet more joy to be had when we think about Jesus. Joy doesn't end with what has already happened. Joy is inevitable when we think about what is still to come. We can rejoice at Christmas because there is joy set before us. There's something up ahead in the distance for everyone that calls upon the name of Jesus. There is a culmination to our joy. There is much joy in the coming of Jesus to earth as a tiny baby, but we will give full expression to our joy in the second coming of Jesus as our reigning King. So let's end our Advent season by jumping ahead to think about future things, to consider the last things. When we read Uh, prophecies in the Bible about the future, there's always an expectation of joy. Zechariah 9.9 says, Rejoice greatly. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. So we can rejoice because our king is coming. And in Matthew 25, when Jesus talks about his second coming and and the, the coming judgment, he says, those who have been good and faithful servants will enter into the joy of the master. And then in the tiny book of Jude, it says, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy 
To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and forever. When we are presented before the glory of God, it will be with great joy. We will have great joy. But I want to focus today on this Christmas Day on the last book of the Bible, on Revelation. The, the, the huge all-in-one um, basket prophecy of the last days. This Jesus will come again. And Revelation is a book where the Apostle John sees a vision of the last days and especially of what heaven will be like. We already looked at how the wise men and the shepherds responded to the birth of Jesus by falling down and, and worshiping him. And that's just a, a little foretaste of what heaven will be like. All through Revelation, Jesus sees heaven as a place where the saints will fall down and worship Jesus because they, they know him to be the lamb that was slain. In heaven, we will truly understand Christ's birth and Christ's life and Christ's death. And we will fall down on our knees in continual worship. The group that represents the saints, the, the church here in Revelation, is the 24 elders. We read about them again and again, and every time it talks about them, they're described just like those wise men who, when they found Jesus in Bethlehem, it says, fell down and worshiped Jesus. So we have these 24 elders doing that same thing. In Revelation 4.10, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. And then it adds that they cast down their thrones, their, their, their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. What a great scene. We talked a little bit about that last week. This is what we'll be doing in heaven. Revelation 5.14, you have the same thing. The elders fell down in worship. Revelation 11.16, the 24 elders fell on their faces and worshiped God. But I want to focus in on the passage that Pastor Wayne read for us before in Revelation 19 because here we see that their worship is connected with joy. Now, Revelation has 22 chapters, so we're now getting close to the end when God is about to finally get rid of evil and destroy this earth before he creates the new heavens and the new earth. Incidentally, if you're wondering, I'm not going to say a whole lot about the timing and the order of all these events today. There's lots of good debate to be had on that, uh, but we'll leave that to some other time. But whatever your view is, we all believe that Jesus is coming again and then the end will come. Anyways, in Revelation 18, just before chapter 19, God finally does away with Babylon. And Babylon basically represents, uh, represents a lot of things, but it can represent the system of this world. Everything that failed to listen to the repeated warnings to repent. And in that chapter, you see, you'll see the political leaders of the earth and from verses 9 and on, and then the business leaders in verses 15 and following, standing off and watching this, watching this destruction that has happened. And it says they were weeping and mourning because everything they had put their hopes in was now for nothing. It was all being torn down. It was all being destroyed. And then in verses 10 and verse 17 and verse 19, it says, in a single hour, 
it all gets destroyed. It says all their wealth has been laid waste. Your judgment has come. Especially during this Christmas season. Doesn't that make you think of this world and, and where it ultimately puts its hopes? That really struck me on that last bit about the merchants, the business people. If there's one thing that says Christmas in our Western world, it's materialism, rampant materialism and spending. And the people that are benefiting the most are the merchants. But here in Revelation 18, it says that someday all will suddenly and swiftly come to an end. All those vain hopes will be wiped away. And the merchants will stand back and mourn. But in stark contrast to this mourning that's happening on earth is the joy of heaven. In chapter 19, the scene changes from what's happening on earth to what's going on in heaven. Basically from Revelation 6 to 18, it describes what's going on uh, on earth during these times. And then in chapter 19, it switches to what's going on in heaven. John writes in chapter 19, verse 1, After this I heard what seemed to be a loud voice of a great multitude, where? In heaven. And then look at verse 7. It says, This great crowd of people, this multitude, who I take to be all the saints, including us, are shouting, Let us rejoice. There's the joy. Let us rejoice and exalt and give Him glory. There's mourning on earth, but heaven is filled with joy. So I just want to take a few moments this Christmas day to encourage you that even though joy is ours right now because of what Christ has done, that joy that we have now will continue right on into heaven. And when we get to heaven, there will be eternal joy. No end to joy. Here on earth, even though we can and we are to be joyful in all circumstances, that joy is still mixed with sorrow. Even though the penalty for sin and the power of sin has been defeated by Jesus on the cross, we still live in the presence of sin. We still live in a post-Garden of Eden world where there is much sorrow and pain and death and tears. As Christians, we can have joy even in sorrow. But this passage promises that one day there will be eternal, everlasting joy without the presence of sorrow. Can you imagine that? We can't. But this is the promise of God's Word. Revelation 19, 1-9, describes five reasons for which Christians can look forward. Just like Jesus endured the cross for the joy set before Him, there is joy set before us which can make us look forward to eternity rather than be scared about what lies ahead. Number one, joy in God's final salvation. In verse 1, John hears the loud voice of a great multitude. Just notice there that there's a, a loud voice. It's, it's, it's like one voice, but it's a great multitude. So they're in unison here. They're shouting as one. Crying out, it says, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Hallelujah here is repeated four different times in, in this section. Actually, this is the only, you might be surprised, it's the only four times it's used in the whole New Testament. It's just a transliteration from the Old Testament that means praise the Lord. Why are they praising God? It says salvation and glory belong to our God. Heaven is rejoicing because God is bringing salvation to His people. 
Now you might be thinking, he already did that through Jesus. We're already saved by repenting and trusting in Christ. And you're right. But this is talking here about our final salvation. So, yes, in, in one sense we're saved, but it's also true that we're still being saved. God will one day remove us from this earth and remove us from these mortal bodies and save us into the presence of God. And then we will receive new glorified bodies. So this is the part of our salvation. That's our glorification. It will happen in the future. And as that happens, God's glory and power will be on full display. So that is a reason for great joy. Can you imagine? You'll be standing before the Lamb, praising Him for for saving us, for saving you into His presence. Revelation 7.10, it says, People from every tribe and nation will be crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Why will we, we be so joyous at final salvation? Because of God's righteous justice. And so there is, secondly, joy in God's just judgment. Remember, this follows chapter 18, where God has just judged Babylon. And, and look at verse 2 here. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. God's judgments, it says here, are true and just. The prostitute that it's talking about there is Babylon, which can, like I said earlier, can represent the deceitful allurements of this world. And is here a symbol for everything that is evil and, and a symbol for anything, uh, anything that is opposed to what is godly. So God is now judging this great prostitute and he's destroying her. But there is joy in heaven because his judgments are true and just. And we will see that to be true in the future and we'll be joyful. While we're still on this earth, we sometimes have trouble, don't we, understanding how God works and why he allows certain things. And often when people who are not known to be Christians die, we try to, we try to somehow place them in heaven. Their loved ones hope that they're in a better place. And they try to derive some, some kind of comfort from that hope. They have trouble conceiving of a God that would judge people to hell and would judge people to eternal punishment. Many times those hopes of a better place are without basis. But sometimes those hopes are earnest because we we just don't know. But in heaven, we will know without a doubt that God's judgments are true and just. And not only will we know, but we will rejoice in God's judgment. That's kind of hard to think about now, especially when it comes to our, maybe our unsaved loved ones. But there will come a day when we will sing, Hallelujah, praise the Lord, for the fact that His judgments are true and just. His name and His justice will be vindicated, and the blood of the saints will be avenged. Number three, we can look forward to joy in heaven because of the finality of God's judgment kind of goes along with the last one you see that there in verse 3 though hallelujah the smoke from her goes up forever it's again talking about Babylon here and, and, and the saints are looking and seeing the smoke going up from this city 
this, what was once this great city. Again, if you think of this in terms of a loved one who's unsaved, it doesn't seem to be an occasion for joy. But I would encourage you to think of this less personally here at this point and more cosmically. Think of it in terms of God finally doing away with all sin and all rebellion and doing away with all the effects of sin and rebellion. If you think of it that way, it is an occasion for joy. Jesus is coming again, and when he comes again, there will be no more sin and no more sorrow, no more sickness, no more tears, no more temptations, nothing to distract us from our devotion to God. Evil is done away with never to return. Those words, the, the smoke goes up forever and ever, are, are a picture of a war that has been lost. Only in this war, it lasts forever and ever. Babylon won't be rising up again. One of my uh, Facebook friends, this is the times that we live in, we get quotes from Facebook. One of my Facebook friends wrote just the other day, Only the King of Kings can declare, Happy Christmas, war is over. That's exactly right. The birth of Jesus has ended one part of the war. But the second coming of Jesus will end the war forever. Evil will be forever wiped out. And what will be left is forever joy. Ray Ortland Jr. writes, We who have come to Christ are not always going to be the way we are now. The world is not going to be the way it is now. Evil is doomed. Our best days lie ahead. All of this kind of got me to thinking. I wonder what the first Christmas celebration will be like in heaven once Jesus has come again and all the saints are gathered around the throne. Won't that be something else? I imagine it'll just be Christmas all the time because we'll be in the presence of the King forever. And we'll be just like Mary, the shepherds, the wise men. We'll be falling down and, and worshiping our King, worshiping our Lord, worshiping our Savior. But the finality of God's judgment also gets me to thinking about everyone who has not been saved. The good news is that there still is time. We don't know how long that time will be. It could be over today. But there is still time. But one day there will be no turning back. And so if you are here today and have not trusted in Christ for salvation, Christmas would be a great day to do just that. Acknowledge that you are a sinner, that you have broken God's laws, and then humbly come before him asking for forgiveness. And then pin your entire hopes on Jesus Christ, on his perfect life, and on him taking the penalty for your sins by dying on the cross. That's called repentance and faith. And if you come to the end of yourself and come to Christ, you too can be included in that heavenly choir. If you don't, you're still under the judgment of God. And you are in danger of suffering eternally under God's true and just punishment. So come to Jesus today. If you wonder more about how to do that, I'd be happy to answer any of your questions or to talk to you about that. We will have joy in God's final salvation 
We'll have joy in God's just judgments. We'll have joy in the finality of his judgment. And fourthly, we'll have joy in God's sovereignty. Look at verses 4 to 6 again. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen, hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. So here we have our 24 elders again representing the church and the four living creatures, which from earlier references seems to be a a high-ranking group of angels called the seraphim. And they're all seated on the throne, worshiping and singing the same song of praise as the multitude was singing back in verse 1. Hallelujah. And they're calling all those that have been redeemed, the small and the great, to praise God. And then in verse 6, I love this. Now you have these people together, and they're crying out with one voice. And, and when you get, out, get all that together, I mean, it's loud. I mean, really loud. John had trouble there describing the volume, so he had to try to make a few comparisons there. He says, it's like the roar of many waters. If you've ever been to Niagara Falls, you can think of that. And like the sound of many peals of thunder. So, so this is like a deafening volume. No, no sound system needed here. What are they singing? This is the final hallelujah chorus in this section. If you've ever seen Handel's Messiah, that, that moving hallelujah chorus there is, is just a very small taste of what will be going on here in heaven. Hallelujah. For the Lord God Almighty reigns. What they're singing about is the fact that God is in control. God is sovereign. God is king. And now his kingdom has arrived in full and he's reigning on his throne for all to see. He has established his reign and his servants are praising him. His sovereignty is now revealed to the whole world. Evil has lost any influence it once had and God is firmly in control. This is cause for joy. The saints are singing the praises of Almighty God. And that then brings us to the culmination of joy. Jesus is about to come again. There is joy in the marriage of the Lamb. Look at verse 7. Let us rejoice and exalt and give Him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come. And His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. So the Lamb, as we all know, is Jesus. If you were here last night, we called our celebration, Behold the Lamb in a manger. And that was cause for unbridled joy for Mary and the shepherds and the wise men, and for us. But at the marriage supper of the Lamb in heaven, when Jesus is united with the church, with the saints, to be together forever, it will be unimaginable joy. Let us rejoice and exalt and give Him glory. The Lamb is Jesus and the bride is the church, the the redeemed, the ones who are counting on Jesus for their salvation. This will be the beginning of a great uh, celebration that will last 
throughout eternity. And we can look to, the, to Christmas as the beginning of that preparation for a wedding. In many ways, Jesus' whole life and ministry was a preparation for this marriage supper. There are many little hints of that as you go through Jesus' ministry there in the Gospels. In John's Gospel, the, and John remembers the same one who's writing this epistle to the Revelations here, uh, in Revelations, uh, John says the first thing Jesus does is, is to attend a wedding in Cana in, in John chapter 2. That's the first thing he reports Jesus is doing, where he turns water into wine. So Jesus is at a wedding. And many of Jesus' parables are, are set at a wedding feast as well. And even the Last Supper looks ahead to that final supper. And so even when we celebrate communion together here at the Lord's table, we anticipate what is to come. We eat and drink and we read that passage. We proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. And so on this Christmas, as we celebrate the birth of the Lamb, we can already look forward with joy to this great supper in heaven where we will eat and where we will fellowship and where we will praise the Lamb. Christmas is a time for joy. Joy in what has taken place at the manger, on a cross, in a tomb. But it's also a time for joy and anticipation for what lies ahead. I'd just like to end today with some words from Johnny Erickson Tata. Many of you will know that name. Johnny was uh, 17 when she had a diving accident back in 1967 that left her a quadriplegic. She's got a great ministry and is, and is really inspiring for her ability to have joy in the midst of unimaginable circumstances. If anyone is, is looking forward to heaven, it is her. And she's written a, a, a chapter in a book. Uh, the book is called Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. It's, written, it, it's edited by Nancy Guthrie and written by a number of people that have contributed chapters. And her chapter is called A, a Christmas Longing. And I just want to close with a, a few words from there. Every Christmas is still a turning of the page until Jesus returns. Every December 25th marks another year that draws us closer to the fulfillment of the ages, that draws us closer to home. When we realize that Jesus is the answer to our deepest longing, even Christmas longings, each Advent brings us closer to his glorious return to earth. When we see him as he is, King of kings, Lord of lords, that will be Christmas indeed. Talk about giving Christmas things, just think, uh, Christmas gifts. Just think of this abundance. You do not lack any spiritual gifts as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. 1 Corinthians 1.7 Talk about Christmas carols. You're about to hear singing like you've never heard before. Listen, and then she quotes the verse here out of Revelation 19.6. Then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude, and like the many, like sound of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. And she goes on and talks about uh, different verses in Revelation. Let's talk about Christmas choirs. There won't be any choir like the one that is singing in Revelation. She says, true, Main Street in your town may be beautifully decorated for the season, but picture this, the twelve gates of the city with twelve pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. The great street of the city was of 
pure gold, like transparent glass. Revelation 21, 21. Oh, and yes, we love the glow of candles on a cold winter's night and the twinkling of Christmas lights in the dark. But can you imagine this? There will be no more night. They will not need the light of the lamp or the light of the sun. For the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. Out of Revelation 22, verse 5. She goes on to say, heaven is about to happen. The celebration is about to burst on the scene. We stand tiptoe at the edge of eternity, ready to step into the new heaven and the new earth. And I can hardly wait. I can't wait to sing, O come all ye faithful, as I gather with my friends and family to worship the Lord in heaven. I can't wait to give him the gift of my refined faith, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. On bended knee, alongside kings and shepherds, together we will praise him and sing glory to God in the highest. And for eternity we will follow the one who is the bright morning star. Christmas is an invitation to a celebration yet to happen. If you've got a Christmas longing, you're about to be satisfied too. Just hold on and say with me, Maranatha, come Lord. Let's pray.